Welcome to the Not A Mommy Yet podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Fay. I started the Not A Mommy Yet blog and this podcast because I've always known I want to be a parent one day, and you might be listening because you feel the same. You may have also heard people with kids say things like, I wish I had known this before I had kids, or I wish I had done that. Hearing those comments made me think about the parts of my life I want to spend more time focusing on before I have kids in ways that will benefit me as a parent. So I started a list of people who can teach me about health, money, relationships, psychology, and more, and started interviewing them, and this podcast was born. Whether you plan to have kids or not, I think you'll find something interesting in this podcast for you. I hope you enjoy, subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Today on the podcast, I'm sharing an amazing, super educational conversation about breastfeeding with international board-certified lactation consultant and Lamaze-certified childbirth educator, Kristen A. Rossi. Kristen has her Master of Science degree in education and has training in maternal and infant assessment, as well as the core areas of lactation. She was one of the lactation consultants at her local hospital and worked on the maternity floor for over seven years before shifting her energy towards building her private practice. In addition to working with both in and out patients, Kristen has been trained and certified in Lamaze and has both written and facilitated a comprehensive and evidence-based childbirth education curriculum. More importantly, she is the mother of three children, and you'll hear more about how she became so interested in this space after the birth of her first son on this episode. We talk about so much, from preparing for breastfeeding even before birth, the benefits of skin-to-skin after birth, a baby's first feed, physiological scenarios that might impact breastfeeding, the truth behind lactation cookies, and how to increase milk supply naturally. We also talk about eating schedules, pumping and dumping, colic, and so much more. We cover a lot and we barely scratch the surface. I have a feeling there are going to be follow-up episodes to this one, and I know we would love to hear from everyone listening if that is something you would like to hear, because I know I would. I hope you enjoy this episode, and stay tuned for a discount code to one of Kristen's courses. Please let us know what your biggest takeaway was in my latest Instagram post on my page, at Yet. Enjoy this episode. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm so excited to talk to you about all things breastfeeding. Yeah, so excited to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, of course. So how did you get into all of this? Was it through personal experience or were you just interested in it and you became a lactation consultant? Um, how did How did it all start for you? So I personally um, wound up getting my my bachelor's and master's degree in education. So I actually used to be a teacher. Okay. Um, now I'm teaching a very different population, <laughs> teaching nonetheless. Um, and it was when I had my son 11 years ago. And in my little corner of southern New Jersey, there just was no help. And I struggled with probably every issue a new mom could have in the breastfeeding world. And I was forced to pretty much figure out most of it on my own. I got a lot of bad advice. I got a lot of misinformation. And I just remember one day sitting on my couch crying with with this newborn baby and thinking to myself, okay, if if I broke my leg, I'd know where to go. Mm -hmm. If I had to throw a throat, I I know, you know, where I could go to get that fixed. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I could not find anybody to help me just feed this baby. And it was such a defeating, lonely, helpless feeling. And after that, I just sort of dove in and tried to educate myself and 
get myself going along that journey the best I could. Um, and then I kind of was the go-to for all of my friends. And then I was like, you know what? I kind of want to do this like for real all Mm -hmm. the time. So that's when I made the shift, um, to start getting certified. And then I sat for my international boards and here I am. 11 years later. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So what do you do now with people? Like what are your services? Where, what's the range? So right now for about seven years, I worked on the maternity floor at our local hospital. Oh, okay. um, but again, where I live in Southern New Jersey, there's really nobody else that's offering home visits. And that's something that if you go to pretty much anywhere else in the U.S., you'll find somebody that should be able to come to your house. Even in Northern Jersey, there are people that do this. But there were so many women who wanted the experience of not having to leave their home and having help come to them. Mm-hmm. And I just, I decided I saw the niche and I was like, you know what, that's kind of where I want to be. Um, and I left the hospital to pursue my private practice. So I've been doing that for the last probably almost two years. Um, and so I go to people's homes. I do virtual visits. So I see women across the U.S. Uh, and then I also am Lamaze certified. So I do childbirth education. And that's something before COVID I did in the community. Um, but now that has to be done virtually as well. So I guess being restricted with COVID can be a tricky thing, but we've sort of, um, you know, figured that out, especially because I was doing virtual consults even before COVID hit. Oh, good. So we have that down to a science. Yeah. 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 Actually I am a birth doula and in the (laughs) course that I signed up for, yeah, in the, well, I got my certification like March 10th of last year. So I've only, I've only attended one birth, which was like a whole nother story. But, um, I, in the course that I purchased to like get my certification, I did four. So there's the birth doula, postpartum doula, lactation consultant, and childbirth educator. And I haven't done the lactation and childbirth courses yet. I'm, I'm almost done with the postpartum one now, but, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm excited to learn more about it. I mean, the books that they had you order for the breastfeeding, I should show you, they're like, probably 10 pounds. I, yeah. <laughs> and it says breastfeeding made simple. That's literally the title oh of the God. book. And That's I'm just hilarious. like, wait, what? You know what? That's like so funny. It's kind of like the epitome of breastfeeding though. It's supposed to be so natural, so easy. And you would be surprised how many people actually have issues. Yeah. So, you know, so I don't, I'm not surprised that there's this giant book and the things I had to know to even sit for my boards. Mm-hmm. I mean, it things that you, you don't really even think of before when you're getting started. It's not, you know, I have a lot of people that are like, how did you be a lactation consultant? Because I think I want to quit my job and do it on the side. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, listen, you need to have a lot of passion for babies and boobs to do this. (laughs) You need to know a lot of things. It's not just like playing with a baby a couple times a day, you know? Right, right, right. Absolutely. So what is something, you know, going back to that first experience with your son, for people, because I know this is kind of an interesting topic for someone, I'm not pregnant, I don't have any children, so, but I'm still curious to learn about it because the basic, basically the point of this podcast is just to try and be more prepared in any way we can for parenthood. And so for breastfeeding, like what would you want people who maybe are pregnant or want to get pregnant who want to breastfeed, what do you want them to know, I guess, that's most important to start off? 
That's such an amazing question because that's some place where I've decided to really throw a lot of my time and attention is reach women in the prenatal setting. Mm. And that's because education is crucial and not just, you know, standard breastfeeding education, how to latch, what to expect, but how to also combat the myths that swirl around out there. Everyone loves to give a horror story to a new mom Mm -hmm. or a pregnant mom. And there are so many myths swirling around in the world of breastfeeding that will that can just make a new mother anxious, nervous, assume from the start that things aren't going to work. Mm-hmm. And when you can link up with a lactation consultant ahead of time, I mean, I don't know about the rest of them, but I know me personally, I always joke with my patients and I'm like, listen, we're about to become breasties <laughs> because anything you need along this journey I'm here. I'd rather be able to be that sounding board and give them the education they need to go in the hospital or the birthing center or the home birth or whatever it is they're having Mm -hmm. and know exactly what to expect when that baby gets here. Yes. The good, bad, the ugly, you know, how to tackle it, what's true, what's not. Um, And so I just find that understanding that, you know, a lot of myths are going to come their way, knowing how to debunk those myths and really arming themselves with all of the education they possibly can that alone increases your chances of success because then you don't get trapped by these like booby traps, they call them, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like things, wrenches that get thrown into the mix that for some women shake their confidence. And the next thing you know, they are second guessing everything and stopping. But yet if you know what to expect, it's easy to get over those hurdles or at least know who to reach out to, to help you get over them. Right. Absolutely. So like, so the one thing that came to mind just now, like when you said booby traps, um, I've heard that when women have a C-section, whether by choice or not by choice afterwards, how quickly are they able to be with the baby to try and breastfeed? So C-sections are a little bit of a tricky beast only because it's obviously major abdominal surgery. So there is a recovery period. And I know that, you know, many hospitals now are really pushing this skin to skin time, which is getting that baby skin to skin immediately after delivery, which obviously is much easier in a vaginal setting, Mm -hmm. vaginal delivery setting. In C-sections, there are a lot of hospitals who do kind of like this, they call it a gentle C-section where they do everything they can once that baby comes out to get them skin to skin or as close to, as you know, mm-hmm. to skin to skin as possible with the mom on the OR table, but you know, she has to be closed and then eventually move into recovery. So in hospitals that aren't taking the initiative to really encourage this gentle type C-section, there are mothers and babies who are separated for sometimes an hour or more. And when you're talking about skin to skin time, that's something that I educate my patients about is getting skin to skin ASAP after delivery, whatever delivery that is. And the sooner you can do that, the better, because there are so many benefits to skin to skin. I mean, therm- mom and baby thermoregulate. So you're keeping that baby warmer than any artificial warming bed. Mm-hmm. Um, baby hears your voice, stays calmer, less crying, maintains blood sugar. And then the baby can show you hunger cues when the baby's ready to, to breastfeed rather than be swaddled and laying in a bassinet somewhere where you may be missing that. Right. So even very, very start, things that you don't even realize contribute to the success of getting breastfeeding initiation off to the best start. Of course. And and how quickly do babies tend to get hungry after birth? And that's another misconception too. So many women, the baby pops out and doesn't really want to do anything right away. And, yeah. and I explain 
that's so normal. Okay. We have this, this phrase of the golden hour. It's yeah. like the hour where after birth, where a baby's expected, quote unquote, to get to the breast. But we have to factor in medicated deliveries, long deliveries, traumatic deliveries. The baby, sometimes, for lack of a better phrase, the baby just like needs a minute to get their act together, honestly. <laughs> and so that's another reason skin to skin is amazing because when the baby's laying skin to skin, we're following that baby's cues. Mm -hmm. And so eventually what starts happening, whether it's 20 minutes later, 40 minutes later, an hour later, the baby will just sort of start pecking around, bringing their hands to their mouth, rooting, showing signs that they're ready to latch. I always tell my new moms, the worst thing that you could do is have an impatient nurse or, or member of your care team see the baby's not eating yet and base it off of a clock and then get their hands in there and try to force the baby to the breast. Nobody wants that. The baby doesn't want it. You don't want it. It gets very overwhelming. The best is to just follow the baby's cues. And yeah. in a normal delivery where there's a low risk scenario, there's no risk of low blood sugars. For example, you know, a mother who, who might have gestational diabetes. Um, if it's a low risk situation, healthy mom, healthy baby, we just tell them your only job is to just snuggle, just stay skin to skin and snuggle until that baby shows signs of being ready. Yeah, that makes sense. And then what is this, what would be the situation where like maybe the baby starts to show signs that like it needs food, but it isn't necessarily showing those cues. Is that something that can happen? No, not really because okay. babies are, they're born to latch. Like okay. they're, and, and, but see, that's a booby trap though. Yeah. Like that, that's a situation that I, when I worked in the hospital setting, that's something I was faced with all the time. I would ask, you know, well, what was this mom's story? Tell me how delivery went for her. And I'd have someone say to me, well, she had the baby, the baby wasn't latching. So we, we gave the mom a nipple shield and right away I'm like, okay, which we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay. We can talk about yeah, we'll get <laughs> But I'm like, well, wait a minute. How long did you give the baby to, to latch? And she was like, oh, like a half an hour. I'm like, well, but maybe the baby just wasn't ready just yet. Yeah. And so now we've, we've introduced an artificial nipple. Now we're forcing a baby to try to get on the breast when they don't want to. And if they're not eating, that mom mistakes it as, well, why isn't the baby eating? The baby must be hungry. They just don't want to breastfeed. Then the next thing you know, that's like, snowballing into, yeah. right, confidence is is shaken. She's asking, should I have a bottle of formula? The care team may be like, sure, and not reassuring as they should be, you know, right. like if they are trained appropriately, for example, in a baby-friendly hospital where they have focus on breastfeeding success, the care team should be trained to say, this is normal. Mm -hmm. Let's give the baby a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. So you can see from the very start, little tiny hiccups in the road contribute to big things yeah. that kind of pull off success. And a lot of, I mean, from what I've like seen and read about a lot of the mental space of where the mom is coming from can impact breastfeeding success. A hundred percent. So that can really Absolutely. start it off on a bad foot, <laughs> wrong yeah, foot. I mean, I've had so many women after they do like my prenatal visit where we, we meet one-on-one, -on -one, we do a whole breastfeeding crash course. I review their whole medical history to look for any medical reasons that there would be an issue with making enough milk. And then we just chat and the whole visit takes about an hour and a half. We get them really prepared. I type up a care plan for them to have once the baby arrives. And so many of those moms have reached back out to me and have said, if I didn't have that knowledge that I got by meeting with you, I know my, my, the beginning of my journey would have been sabotaged yeah. because of just of how things are approached in the hospital setting sometimes. And so that's where that education again can just make a world of difference. Well, also that make, I mean, that's, 
kind of the goal of the birth doula too, is to make sure that when they go into any setting to give birth, whether it's at home or a hospital or a birthing center, that they're armed with that education about labor and delivery. So it makes sense that you would have then that next step ready to go. Um, totally. And that's what I like to explain. There, there's such a bridge between the childbirth education world and the breastfeeding world. And the same goes for, I, I like to always explain to my nervous moms, you know, the same way your body knows how to grow and nourish your baby in utero, mm-hmm. the same way your body knows how to give birth is the same way your body knows how to nourish and feed that baby once that baby is out. So, but for some reason, our society makes breastfeeding seem so complicated. We've got all of these companies that are marketing their products towards new mothers when really they're just kind of like preying on the insecurities of these new mothers. And so just understanding that, you know, of course there are scenarios where a woman may struggle very, very few, fewer than people think, but generally speaking in a healthy scenario, your body's going to be able to do exactly what it needs to do for that baby, both pregnant and also when that baby is finally here. So what are those scenarios? Cause that's what I'm curious about, you know, like if, if it is less common and, and if kind of you are armed with this education and let's say you have healthy mom, healthy baby, what would be a scenario where still something isn't quite connecting there? So there are very few scenarios and things that I look for in a mother's medical history medically would be hypothyroid. That would be one condition where with hypothyroid that can really, really come in the way of a successful milk supply. That being said though, if that mother is being treated for her thyroid, she's being managed, she's on medication, she's following up with her provider after delivery, as long as those levels are in optimal range, not just normal range, but optimal range, all research shows she should have no problem with milk supply. So that is something that can be overcome, but if it's something you're unaware of and your thyroid is out of control, you know, that's one thing that if she knows she's got hypothyroid, we're really diligent about making sure she keeps it in normal range. If she doesn't know and she's showing signs by way of a really poor milk supply, that's one of the first things I'll have her go get tested for. Okay. Um, so that's one thing. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is very common these days, I feel, um, with women. But it's really only about a third of these women that struggle uh, with milk supply. And that can be from a number of different issues. PCOS is a very um, difficult condition simply because there's so many different moving parts in PCOS. Yeah. And some women have some symptoms, whereas other PCOSers don't. Um, so it's really the ones, unfortunately, that are very overweight that have that high, you know, um, BMI and also insulin issues, blatant insulin issues. So especially women who have that gestational diabetes Mm. that kind of throw things off in the very beginning. Um, and then there's what's called insufficient glandular tissue, IGT, um, which is also known as breast hypoplasia. Okay. And what that, that, what that is, is, and I really want to stress this, it is not somebody with small breasts Okay. because believe it or not, you can breastfeed with small breasts. It's, it's not the fatty tissue that we're concerned with. It's the glandular tissue. And what happens is when you get your period in puberty with every cycle, you have a surge of progesterone. That progesterone is what's growing that glandular tissue as you're going through puberty, as you're growing into adulthood. Once you get pregnant, whatever glandular tissue you have there should start to multiply and proliferate. And that's what's going to be making you milk someday. 
So if we have a mother who, for whatever reason, due to hormonal issues during puberty, PCOS, or even thyroid or whatever, she never developed that glandular tissue. And maybe she's got very underdeveloped looking breasts or um, one another characteristic is having very asymmetrical breasts. One might be very small and underdeveloped and the other one may look normal. Um, another characteristic is having them being very widely spaced apart, you know, over about two, two and a half inches apart in combination with some of these other characteristics. Mm -hmm. That's a sign that there may not be a lot of glandular tissue in there. And unfortunately we can't put tissue in. Right. Right. Yeah. We can't, we can't make up for that, but we can get her to her max potential and then figure out what we need to do from there. Because really only in the most severe of IGT cases does, can a woman not breastfeed, even with IGT to a slight degree, she can still breastfeed. It's just going to be the question of, well, to what capacity? Right. Okay. Um, but those are, those are pretty, those are like the pretty, like, okay, we're really looking for these when we have an issue with milk supply, that's kind of going to be your, your most obvious conditions to look out for. Okay. That's good to know. That's interesting. Um, and then before, like, you know how there's all these brands of like cookies and lactation bars and all the foods and stuff. Um, (laughs) should you be eating that in your third trimester? Okay. (laughs) No, no. I wish I could tell you yes, because wow, how easy if we could just eat some cookies and that just makes us have a, I mean, like, I wish that were the case, but I also, I also just really like to like bring them down to, to base level. And I'm like, girls, listen, if, if it were just about eating a cookie, you know what I mean? What did the world do before Target had the lactation cookie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So you have to go back to physiology, the physiology of how milk is created. Mm-hmm. It's very supply demand concept. The more you stimulate, the more you make. The less you stimulate, the less you make. So if I have a mom call me and say, my milk supply is really suffering. What supplements should I use? And I'm like, well, wait, all right, tell me more about your scenario Mm -hmm. because I have to find out, is she hypothyroid? What's her glandular tissue like? How many times is she stimulating the breast? Could this be just an easy fix of maybe working one or two more pump sessions into her day? Okay. But she said, well, I work 12 hours. So I'm gone from the baby 12 hours a day and I'm only pumping twice. And I'm like, well, okay. (laughs) There's your issue right then and there. I mean, certainly there are some, factors where mom may not be able to pump at work. And that's just, you know, don't even get me started on the U S and maternity leave, yeah. whatever. <laughs> um, but you know, if we can help it, if she's in a scenario where she can just simply increase the frequency at which those breasts are being emptied, that alone will increase milk supply. Okay. So breast milk works based off pressure. So when there's a high level of pressure in the breast, the body is told it doesn't need to keep making milk. There's a protein that's fired called the feedback inhibitor of lactation. So for as long as you're maintaining long-term pressure, that's actually telling your body make less. The more frequently you're emptying the breast, that's telling your body to make more. And it's, right. it's really as simple as that, honestly. I mean, that makes sense. Cause obviously when you're trying to like wean your baby off of it, eventually it makes sense that that would be the reaction exactly. your body has. Um, yeah. So, but then why is it, how quickly, I guess, is milk being produced? Because, you know, you see some women who after birth, like when they, when they're like, my milk came in and their boobs look like huge, but then why is it that some women who breastfeed have still have very small looking boobs, but like milk is still coming out. They're still feeding their baby enough. Like everything, like why does that happen? Because it's so (laughs) wild. It has nothing to do. Again, try to like break the connection between big breasts Uh and milk making. 
Okay. Because a woman could have big giant breasts, but just have a lot of adipose tissue, like fatty tissue. Yeah. And that, that breasts are primarily fatty tissue. And then conversely, you can have a woman who like, like, I know, you know, nobody can see me on a podcast, <laughs> but I mean, I don't have the biggest breasts in the world and nor do many women that I come across, but the glandular tissue in there is sufficient enough to where they're making exactly what they need for the baby. So it's really just glandular tissue based. That's so interesting. That's, that's where your milk making cells are. Um, um, and then, you know, now you can, we can throw a wrench in this and we can discuss, for example, like, um, breast implants. Mm-hmm. So think about that concept of pressure that I was explaining. Any source of pressure internal or external tells the body to stop making milk for that time until the breasts are emptied. Mm-hmm. So when you have a woman who has that internal pressure of an implant, her level of pressure may reach that point much sooner than someone who doesn't have those implants. And so her, what we call storage capacity, which is how much milk at one time can be held in the breast, her storage capacity may be smaller than Mm -hmm. somebody else, but that doesn't mean that she can't produce everything the baby needs just simply by feeding more frequently. Okay. I mean, so she'll, so, so let's just, let's just use the example of saying like, um, maybe this one, maybe a woman without those implants, can hold a total of like five ounces at one time. Mm -hmm. Let's say this mom um, can only hold a total of, I don't know, two and a half Mm -hmm. or whatever. That mom just may need to eat more, you know, feed the baby more frequently Mm -hmm. than a mother who doesn't have that smaller storage capacity. And you'll just figure that out as you go. Like that's something you'll, yeah. 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 That's something that once the baby's here, we, we learn their nursing personality. Mm -hmm. We look for the indicators of sufficient intake. So we're looking to make sure that the baby's meeting all those milestones to show us that they're getting everything they need. Mm -hmm. And if everything looks good, then everything's going well. Okay. And I want to talk about schedules and like how much time you space it out. Cause you know, it's interesting that it's not as intuitive. And also you're kind of like when you reach storage capacity, of course you want to release that pressure. So it's like finding the right schedule, but I am, I did want to work in one other question with that is I've heard that when you, um, if you get like really engorged and you start to breastfeed that it can kind of like be too much for the baby. So maybe pumping first and then breastfeeding. So I just wanted to talk about that and, and like schedule and frequency. Absolutely. So the first thing to know is that when you're talking about a breastfed baby and a schedule, they don't really go hand in hand. (laughs) So I often tell moms, like when you're thinking, if they're that type A personality that wants that schedule, I'm like, you really have to kind of just expect the unexpected because we're not feeding by way of a bottle, which means we're not seeing the amount of ounces that's going into a baby. So Mm -hmm. there's no way to know they're getting everything they need unless we're allowing them to what we call breastfeed on demand, which is basically telling the the mom that their baby's ready, whether it be um, showing hunger cues or, you know, understanding that babies roughly in the beginning do eat about every two to three hours. Okay. So the rule of thumb is make sure your baby is eating eight to 12 times in 24 hours. Now for a mom who has high anxiety and who will panic if the two to three hour mark hits and that baby doesn't want anything to do with eating, I say, listen, it's okay. Just offer. Mm -hmm. If the baby eats great, if they don't, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. You just have to keep in mind that, you know, as long as in a 24 hour day, you're getting eight to 12 feedings, wherever they're falling, it's okay. Yeah. So tracking that is 
backing that. Right. And then the other component was, what was the other thing that you asked me? About pumping before feeding. So it's not like such a... right. Right. So when you, when you, if you're walking around full in between feeds, that means that your supply is superseding the baby's demand. So what we want essentially is supply demand to be equal. Okay. We want your, your supply to match the baby's demand. So the way we do that is we get away from cookie cutter advice. For example, it used to be old school advice to say, time the baby at the breast, 15 minutes on one side, 15 minutes on the other. The problem with that is what if we have a woman who makes a lot of milk? That Mm. baby may only need one breast per feeding. Mm. And we really want to make sure they're emptying one breast before switching to the other side, simply because things like fat tends to come more towards the end of a feeding. So if we're cutting that baby off just because the clock is saying so, but we still have a breast filled with milk, that there's components of that breast milk that that baby isn't getting. Okay. So what you then do is that's, that would be an instance though, where you've got a mom who's got this, these full breasts that could potentially be making it to be too much. The baby's choking, gagging, milk right. is kind of spraying everywhere because you're telling your body in that moment to be making way more than it needs to be. So you're just constantly in this full engorged state. And then the baby does have a hard time with that. Mm-hmm. When you can dial that back a little and get supply demand to kind of match, then the baby has a much easier time because your breasts aren't always in that full state. Right. You know, and of course there are some mothers who have what's called a forceful ejection reflex, which is where when that letdown occurs, that milk is spraying. Yeah. And newborn babies sometimes struggle with that. Yeah. You know, they'll choke, they'll gag, but then there's measures we can put into place to help her. So, you know, reclining while eating so that milk is traveling up and the baby's on top of that feed rather than having the baby be in a laying down position and having that milk going right down their throat. You know, that's one way. Another way is catching your letdown when, you know, some women feel letdowns, some women don't. Either one is fine. Mm -hmm. But if they feel it, they feel that pins and needles sensation. I always say, unlatch the baby, hold a burp cloth to your breast, have that forceful letdown into the burp cloth for about 15, 20 seconds. And then when you're doing that, um, you, you can get the baby back to the breast without you know, any difficulty that milk ejection is over and the baby does. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. The different positions I'm sure are something that you go through with them. (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Position. I mean, that's another thing too, though, where it's hard to wrap your head around it when the baby's not here. Right. Yeah. So we go over some really standard, basic latching and positioning. There's a great technique that I have, um, for, for latch that really helps with, avoiding soreness. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's again, something that once the baby's here, if a mom is struggling, they can call me anytime and I can help them with that. So I've seen it before where some women choose to pump exclusively or breastfeed exclusively. And then of course there's the, the mixture of the two. I'm curious why some women choose to pump exclusively. Like and, and if you've seen that before, and then I've also, I listened to a podcast yesterday actually, and the woman, her mom gave her advice that was just like, when you breastfeed, all you need is your purse and the baby and you can go anywhere. And like, just kind of made it super simple, like, you know, and, and kind of took any pressure off of it. And so I'm, I'm curious about the two um, yeah. decisions people, I guess, make for themselves. Well, so obviously that is definitely something that's a personal choice, but, um, but exclusive pumping is certainly possible. It's just not the easiest thing to do. I mean, you're connected to a pump every two to three hours, essentially until you're building yourself a really good milk supply. 
Um, and so you're, you are already incorporating other steps where you otherwise wouldn't if you were to just latch a baby to the breast. Mm -hmm. That being said, though, there are women who are survivors of sexual abuse, um, abuse in general, and the thought of bringing a baby to a breast is just something that they cannot mm -hmm. wrap their heads around. They're very uncomfortable with that. Uh, but for whatever reason, you know, pumping is something that they can tolerate. And so that's a choice that they, many moms who have experienced abuse, they will choose that route. Mm -hmm. um, there are women who have had traumatic experiences with their first child, maybe, you know, severe nipple damage or, you know, really anything that they classify as traumatic. And they have decided, you know what, this time around, I've made the choice to give my baby breast milk, but I really just want to pump. Okay. And for those moms... Listen, I always explain to my mothers, the first thing I ask them in a visit with me is what are your goals? Yeah. If you could wear the magic wand and have all of this look exactly like you want it to look, yeah. that's where I'm going to get you. If you want to breastfeed two days or two years, if you want to exclusively pump or never pump at all, you just tell me where you want to be. And as long as the choice is an informed one, so that would be my next step, giving them right. all of their options, you know, the pros and cons. Um, whatever they then decide, that's where I'm going to get them. Right. We're going to take a quick pause to share more on Kristen's course, How to Booby Your Newbie. Here is Kristen explaining the course and stay tuned for a discount code if you're interested. So for everybody who is listening to this amazing podcast that I have absolutely fallen in love with, um, I wanted to offer 10% off of my online e-course, How to Booby Your Newbie, a breastfeeding crash course for success. It's a course that covers everything from getting prepared all the way through what to expect in the newborn period, all the way through breastfeeding through the first six months and beyond, troubleshooting issues, anything that might come your way. And it's a great option to take this course in the comfort of your own home at your own pace um, if a one-on-one -on -one visit is not something you're interested in. Of course, I do offer one-on-one -on -one consults both in the prenatal setting to get you ready to breastfeed and then also once the baby's here to troubleshoot any issues you might be having, um, all done on a telehealth platform, one-on-one, -on -one, HIPAA compliant, privacy protected. Um, it would be my honor to help you through this journey. If you have any questions, just give me a shout. You guys know where to find me. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much, Kristen, for sharing this. If you guys are interested, head to the link in the podcast notes on this episode. And when you're checking out where it asks you if you have a coupon code, go ahead and enter Mama Podcast. That's M-A-M-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T in all caps for 10% off of your purchase. I know I'll be signing up for this course right now just because I'm in the middle of studying the subject. And if you happen to know anyone who is pregnant and wants to breastfeed, this could also be a great gift. Again, that's 10% off if you enter the discount code mama podcast at checkout. Okay. Back to the episode. So, you know, exclusive pumping, I wouldn't say it happens. If I were to look at my, my patient population as a whole, I, there aren't that many. Um, and it is, but it is possible. It's absolutely possible. And, uh, it's just a little bit more difficult. And could it also just be because they want the partner to be involved in the feedings more than they would be if it was just breastfeeding? Sure. But in that case, I do have women who want to have their partners involved, but um, most of them still are incorporating breast time at the breast. Okay. They just want me to help them incorporate one or two pump sessions into their day to start helping them store milk. So for example, 
their partner can take the 2am feeding or, you know, they want to go on a date night and somebody else can feed the baby. So there's a way to still breastfeed, but also incorporate pumping to allow for bottle feeding time, whether it be by the partner or anybody, any caregiver essentially. Okay. And how long, like, I know this is totally a personal choice, but like, what do you, what do you talk about? I guess when people ask you like, how long should I breastfeed? Cause I'm sure that's a question oh, that, that you get. It's so funny. That, so that's the final slide in my presentation when I'm teaching my breastfeeding class. <laughs> and, I, and I joke because the title is how long should I breastfeed? And I always say to them, when we get to that slide, that is not a question I can answer for you. Yeah. All I can say to you, all I can tell you is what is recommended. Okay. So, so what is recommended presently by the Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Pediatrics, is to breastfeed exclusively to six months. Now, that includes breast milk by bottle. So Mm -hmm. an exclusively breastfed baby, we should really be calling it, you know, an exclusively breast milk fed baby Mm -hmm. uh, because it doesn't matter the modality. Mm -hmm. It's just breast milk in general to six months. Mm -hmm. At that point, solid food gets introduced. So now solid food is going to be complementary to the breast milk diet all the way up to the age of one. At the age of one, you can do whatever you want. You can stop breastfeeding. You can switch to cow's milk. You can switch to almond milk. You can switch to no milk. Mm -hmm. Um, Primary mode of nutrition up to the age of one has to be breast milk and or formula. So whatever you decide to do after that point, you know, is totally up to you. Okay. That's good to know. Um, so then what about the myth? I'm sure you talk about this too, about pumping and dumping. I mean, I don't know if this is a myth. Yes. <laughs> I love this. Because like, you know, you see women who just have a baby, they're like, give me a glass of wine or like whatever. You know, how does that work? What is, what is true and what is not true? <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're asking. I just did a whole video on this. I did a, a whole TikTok video on this. Oh, really? And, <laughs> oh my gosh, the comments. Like, I have to tell you probably... 98% of, no, I'd say 99% of them were amazing. They were all women like, oh my gosh, I didn't know this. And like, <laughs> this is such good news. And then of course you have the couple that are like, you really should just, you know, sacrifice <laughs> any drinking of anything. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a second, let me just explain how this works. Yeah. So the way that this works, alcohol is moves in and out of your breast milk the same exact way at the same exact rate that it moves in and out of your blood. Okay. So if it takes you about an hour to metabolize a drink, it is gone from your milk as well. So the rule of thumb, mm-hmm. although it seems very lax, is if you can legally drive, you are absolutely fine to breastfeed. Oh, okay. And so what I explain to my mothers is like, listen, if you want to have a glass of wine, feed the baby, have the glass of wine. And by the time the baby's ready to eat again, because remember, we're on more of that like two to three hour schedule, mm-hmm. right? I, don't, I say schedule. I should not say schedule. I should say <laughs> two to three hour, you know, loose guideline. <laughs> yeah. By the time the baby's ready to eat again, that is gone. It's gone from your milk. No need to pump and dump. Okay. The only analogy, the only time, this, the only situation that I really give in an instance where pumping and dumping may be warranted would be, for example, let's say you know, um, you're going to a wedding. So you're going to be gone for at least six hours, let's just say from your baby. And we're hitting hour three. So now we're getting to the point where your body expects to release milk because Mm -hmm. if you were home, you'd be feeding your baby, Mm -hmm. but now you have your pump with you. So you sneak off to wherever you're going to go to pump, but you just got done doing like 
three shots at the bar. (laughs) You've had a glass of wine. You're, you're really living up this, this, this wedding, this time away that you're having in that instance, because you are clearly very intoxicated while pumping that milk, that milk shouldn't be given to the baby. Okay. And I would say pump and dump it. But honestly, now so many people are like, well, no, you can use it for their skin, for milk baths, for whatever. So really, you don't have to get rid of it at all. Oops, sorry. Oh, you don't have to get rid of it at all. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that just reminds me of uh, that episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians from years ago when uh, Kim yeah. was stealing Courtney's milk for her psoriasis. I'm telling you, it, <laughs> breast milk, listen, it sounds crazy, but the amount of anti-inflammatory properties, antiviral, antibacterial, uh, soothing properties, I mean, you name it, breast milk is so crazy with what is in it yeah. and the amount of things you can do with it. I've had people put it in their baby's eyes and it fixes, you know, it cures conjunctivitis. I mean, obviously I should put a disclaimer, speak to your physician before doing anything like that. <laughs> yeah. but, <laughs> but I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been myself, I've done stuff like that and it, and it works. It's just breast milk is a wondrous thing. It yeah. really is. That's amazing. Okay. So that's good to know. So that's, cause that's always something I feel like people are just so confused about and unsure now I will it. say too, the other thing is that people say like, you know, the other side of the spectrum, which is no, in my culture or whatever, you know, we've heard that beer actually can help your milk supply. Hmm. And that's a little bit of a myth too. I mean, the research that I, you know, what I was taught when I was trained is that only that like deep, dark, like European beer that you're going to get in Europe can have just a little bit of a positive effect. But generally speaking, I don't want women to think that any alcohol consumption is going to help supply. (laughs) It definitely is not. And in fact, you know, you have to think too, if you're really, really intoxicated, well, you shouldn't be holding your baby in that case anyway. (laughs) But when you're intoxicated, obviously your your sensory, um, your sensory, sensories are numbed, dulled, right? So when you have a mom who needs to feel the sensation of her nipples being stretched, which is what the nerve endings pick up on to tell the body to release milk, we can have that response delayed if she's in a state of being really intoxicated mm-hmm. and kind of numb. Mm-hmm. So that's something to consider as well. But again, generally speaking, a, a drink or two in mo- you know in moderation is absolutely fine okay. while breastfeeding. So, um, you know, as you said that like lactation cookies and all of that stuff is, is not necessary, but are there diet nutrition tips that you share with your clients that can help the quality of the milk? So that's a great question. Believe it or not, human milk is made the same all the time. Just like cow's milk is made a certain way. Deer milk is made a certain way. I mean, human milk is made a certain way. And there are very few things that you can alter mm-hmm. in your milk by way of oral intake. Vitamin D is one of those things. Okay. So we always want to make sure that mom is on her prenatal vitamin still or a vitamin of some sort, simply because your body will take, your breast milk will take from your body before it goes without. Mm -hmm. So that's why those vitamins are meant to kind of be in place to kind of help mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing to just keep in mind is that is it's essential to be hydrated. So I always tell moms, you do not have to choke down an overabundance of water if you're really not feeling it, but Mm -hmm. you do have to make sure you're drinking to thirst and staying hydrated. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as food goes, you know, there's no special diet you need to have. There's nothing you need to avoid. It is absolutely a myth that you have to avoid spicy food or, or gassy food. Breast milk is made based off what's in the blood, not what's sitting in our digestive tract, which is what makes us gassy. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but we do, you know, I do like to remind them that you're burning a significant amount of calories simply lactating, roughly around 500 calories a day. So it is recommended, not that I tell my, my patients to calorie count. I don't, I think that's just an added stress. Mm-hmm. I explain eat as, as you would have if you had a healthy, nourishing diet prior to having the baby, eat the exact same way. And, and if you're hungrier, make sure you're eating more too. That's mm-hmm. going to, you know, that your body's going to tell you when you need to eat. And so we don't want moms skipping meals, have snacks on hand. If you, if you're looking at the clock and you're like, geez, it's been a little while since I've eaten, really just make sure that you, you eat something, um, and account for that calorie burning that you are doing in that state yeah. of lactation. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I have heard that. Yeah. You burn more calories and then you're also more hungry. And I mean, you're also recovering yeah. from giving birth and your body's getting back to how it was. Right. So, um, so when you said the gassy foods, it reminded me of um, uh, colic. I was a super colicky baby, like really, really bad. But my mom, she tried everything. She said that the La Leche League came like to the hospital. She had the hospital grade pump, like nothing worked. She just like couldn't breastfeed no matter how hard she tried. And it was like pretty, I think, traumatic for her. And so oh we were all formula fed. Um, me and my sisters and I'm just curious about well because I was formula fed I guess this doesn't relate to breastfeeding but I guess both scenarios breastfeeding and it does no actually do you mean in terms of colic yeah yeah Yeah, so um no that's a great question and actually what we're finding now is if I have a patient call me and say my baby is so colicky she's gassy, she arches in pain, Mm -hmm. she's spitting up a ton, she's miserable, she's not a happy baby. The first thing I say is send me a poop picture because I can tell you if I see mucus in the poop, which is a sign of all those symptoms plus mucus in the poop, that's usually a baby who has a cow's milk protein sensitivity. So what we're finding is colic is this term that, which would make sense in your instance because formula is bovine based, formula is cow's milk based. So what I'm finding is, you know, colic is this blanket term that basically explains all of those symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. But all of those symptoms are the symptoms of a cow's milk protein sensitive baby. So what I usually do, even in the instance where a pediatrician may may say the baby has reflux, reflux is also something that's incredibly overdiagnosed. And that's not just me saying that the AAP has put out a statement that reflux needs to kind of be they need to simmer down a little bit with how, how they're re- they're diagnosing yeah. reflux because babies are being put up on medicine unnecessarily. And some of these medicines relate to bone fractures later in life. So it's a big deal. But most of the time when I have a mom come to me with these symptoms, we can fix it. I mean, we can, I can pretty much give her a brand new baby by simply helping her with the elimination diet. And that's something that's even complicated in itself that would take a while to even sit and talk about that. But yeah, I just want new moms to understand that, you know, a, just a, a gassy baby here and there, that does not mean you need to get rid of the dairy in your diet. If you have a baby that's exhibiting all of those severe symptoms, plus mucus in the poop or even flecks of blood in the mucus, those are all signs that there's, there is a digestive irritation happening mm-hmm. and it is almost always the cow's milk protein that's doing it. And so when I help her truly strictly and effectively eliminate that cow's milk protein, we usually, she's got a brand new baby within a matter of weeks. So when you say cow's milk protein, is it in the formula, but also in what she's eating? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
So when, when we have a mom who has a baby with a true protein sensitivity, we have to eliminate almost every instance of that cow's milk protein. I'm talking like label reading. I mean, I've had moms who could not take their prenatal vitamins because, or let's say basically what was happening is the baby wasn't getting better Mm -hmm. and nobody could figure out why, because she or she thought she had this perfect diet. She got rid of all the cow's milk protein. And then we look at her prenatals and there's there's cow's milk protein in the prenatal. So sometimes that's how little that is required to initiate like a response in the baby. So mm-hmm. what I do is we go through the whole, you know, I have this amazing ditching dairy resource sheet. I basically tell her all the things she has to avoid, but I also give her some fabulous suggestions for substitutions. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just hold her hand through it. And then within a matter of a few weeks, we have a different baby. And that's another thing to understand too, is even in the most strict of an elimination diet, it still takes a really long time for this to work through everybody's system. So, you know, again, we, we may have a pediatrician who's not terribly knowledgeable, who says, all he says to her is take out dairy, good luck and come back in a week and let me know how things are going. Doesn't tell her how, doesn't tell her how strict she needs Mm -hmm. to be. And one week is also not enough time. Mm -hmm. So now she's back in the office and he's like, doesn't know what to do. So now that the peat is like, all right, let's start taking out wheat or eggs or, you know, peanuts. Mm-hmm. And I, so many times I've had moms come to me on this crazy elimination diet. And I'm like, whoa, let's first make sure you were doing the cow's milk protein right to begin with. Yeah. And, and then go from there. And the, the other kicker, the little wrench that I'll throw into this is that the same way we can make baby formula, infant formula out of soy is the same way that that soy protein very closely resembles the cow's milk protein. And so a lot of moms who have this, it goes hand in hand with soy. So if they're doing cow's milk, but not soy, and the baby's not getting better, soy is the very next thing that should be suggested. I personally have moms take out both right away. Yeah. Because I I would never want her to go three weeks into it on this elimination diet, come to find out we need to eliminate soy too, which most of the time is necessary. And it feels like she's starting all over again. Right, right, right. So, so that's something to factor in. Okay. So yeah, I cut out dairy like seven years ago. I don't eat it at all. So theoretically, like, would I be able to avoid colic or could it still? Probably. Okay. So, so that's pretty I mean, much the cause of colic. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that there's like a formal statement out there that says colic is a cow's milk protein right, sensitive right, right. baby, but I can tell you that's what it's starting. I mean, to me, in my experience, that's what it, it appears to be. I mean, like I said, if I had a mom that comes to me with a baby who's exhibiting colic symptoms and we've ruled out everything else, it is usually the cow's mm-hmm. milk protein sensitivity. So that's um, different than just a baby maybe being you're gassy. Not eating soy though. Do you eat, do you have, do you like, are a lot of your substitutes soy based? Um, probably. I don't know. I don't really, I just don't, I, it's like coconut milk, yogurt, almond milk, oh, like perfect. that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, I try to stay away from soy anyway, but I definitely probably will get better reading ingredient labels when I'm pregnant. And yeah. Um, So when a baby's just kind of like gassy, that's, you know, colic is very different. It's more extreme. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and listen, there are, there are different levels of sensitivity. So Mm -hmm. some moms who have a baby who maybe isn't exhibiting these crazy severe symptoms, and maybe they don't have a baby who would be classified as miserable or Mm -hmm. colicky, but they have a baby that is overly gassy and spitting up a little bit more. Sometimes I'll say like, just go light on the dairy and see if that helps. And sometimes it is enough 
to help the quality of things. And that's all, that's the, the farthest they have to go with it. But most of the time when they're coming to me, they're coming to me because they're, they are frustrated and things yeah. are severe. Yeah. And so usually most of the time for me, I'm working with moms in a full cow's milk soy protein elimination. Got it. Okay, cool. Well, there's so many more questions I want to ask you, but there's just one more that I think I, we have time for. No, yeah, <laughs> um, so I would just like to know for women who are just like, I don't want to breastfeed. Right. That's it. Like, how do you, like, would they still need your coaching, you know, to kind of like work through that or, or do they just not breastfeed? Like, how does no, that work? No, usually. So that's usually something that the nurses will tackle in the hospital setting if they are, in a, you know, if they have a hospital delivery, mm. um, part of discharge instructions, you're either going to talk to a mom who's incorporating breastfeeding when she goes home upon discharge, or you're talking to a mom who is not. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that advice and the instructions, the discharge care instructions are given by the nurse taking care of, of that mom. So in the hospital setting, when we had a patient who was exclusively formula feeding, Mm -hmm. I didn't even play a part in, in her day, you know, unless she asked to see me for whatever reason, if she had questions or whatever, but it's not like I would go and harass her (laughs) if if she came in saying, I never want to breastfeed a day in this experience, then we stay away. We don't, we don't, we certainly respect that. Right, right, right. Um, but you know, measures of drying up your milk are the same across the board, really, whether you're doing it for the first time immediately after you have a baby, or if there's an emergency and you need to dry up, let's, I just, for example, had a mom who was diagnosed with MS and the experimental medication that she's needing to be on is absolutely not compatible with breastfeeding. And so she needed to dry up very quickly. And so the the steps are pretty much the same. It is avoid stimulation. It used to be a practice uh, to bind the breast tightly. We do not recommend that now because that puts you at risk of mastitis and plug ducts. So mm-hmm. we don't want that. Um, we also don't want you to use heat. So cold is going to kind of be your best friend because a lot of that going on is an inflammation. And so heat will aggravate that, stimulate that. And that's not what we want. Mm-hmm. So cold compresses are going to work well. Um, that age old myth, this is one of the age old myths I can buy into because so many women swear by it. And that's just the cabbage leaves, Mm -hmm. um, and changing them out when they become wilted, you know, that's something that women find to be very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, and then even in tricky situations where I have a mom who is really ready to be done wherever she is in her journey and and it's taking a while, sometimes even taking Sudafed, um, for whatever reason, the pseudoephedrine is a drying agent. And so that can help as a last resort for a mom who really wants to dry up, but isn't really having success or has to do it really quickly. Interesting. And the cabbage leaves can be used too for mastitis, right? Um, It can, but honestly, that's not necessarily the first mode of treatment. Believe it or not, um, what mastitis is, is when the milk in the milk cells leak outside of the milk compartment into the surrounding tissue and the body is like, okay, that doesn't belong there. And so it creates an inflammatory response. And so mastitis, we used to think was always an infection, but mastitis starts off as an inflammation. So believe it or not, if we catch it early enough, Mm -hmm. mastitis can be prevented from turning into a a place where antibiotics are needed. If we simply take an anti-inflammatory, for example, Motrin. Mm -hmm. So any ibuprofen, Motrin, Advil, whatever, first signs of mastitis. If you're feeling achy, if you have the chills, if you have a, a warm red spot on the breast that is also sore, start popping Motrin around the clock, of course, with your doctor's approval if yeah, Motrin yeah, yeah. is something you're allowed to take. Um, but taking that anti-inflammatory around the clock in combination with 
warm compresses, deep hand massage while breastfeeding or while pumping. Um, all of those things are going to help move that mastitis before ever really needing to go to any other measures, honestly. So I, I wouldn't say that cabbage leaves are really a popular thing in, amongst my patient population. Usually we can kick it with just standard measures without having to do that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, this is amazing. It was so informative. I learned so much and I know everyone. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy. That <laughs> yeah. makes me happy. Call me anytime. <laughs> Thank you. I definitely <laughs> will. Especially when you start going through, you know, your, the lactation component of what you're doing. Yeah. Please hesitate to, to reach out. I would love to answer any questions you have. And Thank you. And I'll definitely recommend you to my friends. They're all, you know, starting to try and get pregnant. And um, the fact that you do virtual consultations is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm seeing women in Las Vegas, in, you know, LA, in Chicago. I have an Ohio patient, I like all over. That's awesome. And for me, it's not even about being well-known. I don't even care. Mm -hmm. I don't need, I don't need fame at all. I just love knowing that if people aren't getting help locally, there's still options for them. Totally. Because I'm so passionate about what I'm doing. Yeah. I just want people to know I exist. That Absolutely. if they need me, I'm here. Yeah. I mean, every person going through this deserves to have the support that you offer. I mean, it's like you said, you know, your experience 11 years ago, like that should just not be the case in today's world, especially with people like you out there who can do this virtually and help anyone anywhere in the world, really. Um, right. So I ask everyone on my podcast three questions that I'd love to ask you now as we wrap up. Okay. Um, so the first one is what words or mantra do you like to live by? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, some people have a lot, so maybe your favorite. I think there's always a plan B. Mm. There's always a plan B. I love that. I always, and you know what? Like I find myself saying that so frequently because when I end a phone call with my patients or even people in my life, like if people are calling me for advice or just to vent, nothing is permanent. Mm -hmm. And so if something's not working, there's always a plan B. We just need to figure out what that's going to be. And then we course correct. That's amazing. That's such a good one. Yeah. Um, and the next one is we all know it takes a village to raise children. And, um, what do you, what have you seen in your community who have been around you as your son has grown up, who's helped you that like you've really appreciated the most in having surrounding him and you? Oh my gosh. Well, at this point I have three children. Oh, okay. So I have quite the tribe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm lucky enough to have family. So I have my mom who was an incredible mother growing up and now I have her as an even more amazing grandmother. Mm -hmm. So family is important. Friends are important, but I always, I feel like it's essential to find your tribe, mm -hmm. like find, find where you fit in, in this world of parenting and all of those different things that you may do that other moms may also be doing. Mm -hmm. um, for example, my, I have a great yoga community where I am. Um, one of my yo local yoga studios have just an incredible group of women who hold support groups for different things. And of course, obviously yoga. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you're, you're, you're intertwining with like-minded humans mm -hmm. and it just, keeps you on track and keeps you sane yeah. because you're bouncing things off of each other. You're like, well, this is what I'm experiencing. Who else is going through this too? And mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, somebody else is like, well, me too. And then yeah. you don't feel crazy. Yeah. And then you find your tribe. So it's just, that's something that when you're talking about a village, 
it's for me, it's definitely more than just family and close friends. It's people in the community too, that you can bond with to help you get through this crazy time in life. Absolutely. Did you feel like that you found that after you had kids more? Yes. Okay. Yes. And it's, it's crazy. One thing I, I brace my new moms or my expecting moms for is that I don't think anyone realizes how friendships can change after you have children, Mm -hmm. because if you have kids, but your friend doesn't and doesn't really understand what this looks like now, the sacrifices you're making. Maybe you have to be home by a certain time because maybe you guys feel strongly about a bedtime routine and they can't quite wrap their heads around that. Mm -hmm. You know, friendships can change Mm -hmm. after children come and you start to gravitate towards people who really know your life because they're living it too. Yeah, absolutely. And not to say there's not a place for those older friendships, but it's just things change. They just change. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, what qualities do you most value that you've worked to instill or you are already seeing in your children as they grow up? A hard work ethic that's and passion for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That's something that I, I, even with school, I explain to my kids, you know, your work ethic starts now, even in just school yeah. and how you're, the passion that you put towards your work. And one of my most proud moments is my son didn't do great on a test. And without me having to even say anything, he went to the teacher. He's only 11. Mm-hmm. So you have to, I get a little bit of props for being so brave. Yeah. But he went to his teacher and he said, I really don't like that. I didn't get a good grade and I really want to understand this better. Will you work with me and oh. maybe let me take this at some point? That's amazing. And he emailed me and I was like, okay, I'm doing something right. Maybe not everything, but I'm doing something right. That's amazing. So, yeah. What a and obviously, and compassion. My other, my other biggest thing is compassion. You never know another person's struggles unless you're walking in their shoes and maybe you never will, but trying to understand mm-hmm. and having that sense of empathy and compassion. Absolutely. I'm just an empath by nature. Yeah. So, you know, and I, and my, my kids, well, two of the three are two. <laughs> my other one's a little bit of a wild card, but, um, but yeah, so, so we have to work a little harder with him, but yeah. just having compassion, empathy, understanding everybody's walking a different journey and just being compassionate about what that looks like for each person. Nice. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Well, where can people Thanks. find you? So you can find me on, well, geez, you can find me pretty much anywhere. You can find me on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'll include big all the Instagram. links too. So what's that? I'll include all the links to everything as well. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Instagram, Facebook, my website is um, www.krlactation.com. But if you're going to include all those links, then I probably don't even have to see <laughs> them. Um, but if, 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 you know, if somebody is local to Southern New Jersey, then I, you know, I am happy to come hang out. We will, I'll come to you. We can get you on the right path and just get you where you want to be. But I just can't stress enough how I can do pretty much everything virtually as well. Even um, and something we didn't get to really touch upon, um, but like tongue tie, things like that. Oh yeah. Even, even though that's something that of course an in-person assessment is a little bit more thorough because my fingers are the ones that's doing the assessment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I can't help you from afar. And in fact, all of my virtual patients who have a suspected tie, I'll send them instructions on how to get a good assessment while somebody else takes a picture so they can send them to me. So I can at least get my eyes on there. And then I have great, great, great resources throughout the U.S., 
for preferred providers that I know will be able to handle it for them. Okay. That's great. So rather than just go to some random person who may or may not do a great job with an assessment or a revision. So tongue tie is a specialty that I feel very strongly about very. And so that's something that I'm able to help even if not local. Okay. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. We may have to do a part two or an Instagram live or something. To. I would love to do a part three, four, five, six. <laughs> Anything I feel you like need. this, I mean, Anything based, you, need, you let me know clearly, you know, yeah. this is my passion. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, based on that 10, 15 pound book out there, I'm sure we only scratched the surface. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're going to do so great with all of it though. And I'm so, it's, it's so amazing to have people like you in the community because we need more of it. Oh, we just you. need more of it. I mean, you're so amazing. The more, this the more people, the better. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. So if you're like me, not only do I want Kristen to be my mentor and friend, I will 1000% be calling her in my third trimester whenever that time comes so she can guide me through this journey seamlessly. I'd love to hear from you and what you thought about this episode. Do you want to learn more? Should we do an Instagram live? Let me know. Direct message me on Instagram. Follow Kristen on all the platforms too. You can find those links in the show notes. And as always, please leave a review and rate this show if you're enjoying these episodes. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.